which will culminate on January 1, which will be forgotten by January 5. I'm a prophet. I know these things. Anyway, Merry Christmas. I guess the best way to describe this scene from Scripture is sort of like homecoming hero from a military campaign, Congressional Medal of Honor winner, one of the few that survived and got the medal or Navy Cross or whatever. He's coming home, and the town is out to greet him, and everybody that's important wants to be close and get their picture snapped. And when this itinerant rabbi by the name of Jesus, who had barely uh, left this town, Nazareth, uh, just a short while before, who has become a rock star in all of Israel, is coming home for the very first time. All the dignitaries, anybody of importance for miles around made sure that they were there at that synagogue that particular Sabbath morning for Jesus And so it's his one place that he thinks at this point with all the matting crowd out there and all that's going on, I can come home, everybody knows who I am, I'm home with my family. And so he cuts to the chase. He doesn't talk in parables, he doesn't make references, he doesn't infer this or that or the other thing. He cuts to the chase and he says, people, my family, my friends, my fellow citizens of this town of Nazareth, I want you to know why I came. And he opens up scripture from the the book of Isaiah and he reads these words that are recorded in Luke chapter 4 verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I don't know what Jesus expected that day, but he didn't get what he expected. Those of you that have been to Israel, you know that Nazareth is just right on a cliff. And below the the city of Nazareth, you drop down probably 250, 500 feet below. And then you hit the plain of of, uh, the middle part of of Israel. And then you go on up to the Mount Mount Carmel and all those places where Elijah hung out. But when it says in the Bible that they were going to stone him to death doesn't necessarily mean culturally that they were going to pick up rocks and throw it at them. They had a faster way of doing it. They simply pushed you off the cliff and dashed on the rock below, and that's how you got stoned to death. It certainly was a stoning experience. And so they immediately knew that he was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And they knew who he was. They knew you know, what it was like when he went to school and they knew what it was like to play with him in the, in the neighborhood and they knew who his mother was and his father was and all of his brothers and all the cousins and everybody else and they said, uh-uh, not on our watch. We're not going to let this happen. The important part about this, however, is that he wanted to open his heart to his own people. I am the hometown hero coming back. I want you to know why I am here. I have been anointed to do these things. Luke 4, verse 43, but he said, I must preach the good news 
of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. Not just Nazareth, not just here, but I'm, I've got to go everywhere. I've got to give this message out that I have been anointed to do this. Are you guys with me? <laughs> no, they were not with him. And so we come to this Christmas season, this time of celebration of the Advent. Jesus came down to this earth. And we have all these images of him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And we're so Western that we think that the manger was wrapped around a barn with wood on it. And if we understand anything about Bethlehem, it was some dank, cold cave that probably had a little bit of straw on it because the, the sheep were about the only animals inside the cave and they were out eating all day long. They didn't have to feed them. And so they had to scrounge a little bit for the straw to put the baby in. And uh, all of that is not important except for this one central fact, Jesus came. That's what makes the story important. Jesus came. In one second, the divine became human. In one split second, surrounded by light and the glory of heaven, the next moment, the next second, he's surrounded in amniotic fluid inside the womb of a 14 or 15-year-old little girl, a peasant girl. She was not some sophisticated New Yorker who had the best education. She was just marriage age. 14 or 15, that's when you married your daughters off in those days. And we still today have to feed our daughters until they're 18 or 22 or whatever. What, what a country. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, coming down, but God came near. God came. That very moment in time when that baby opened its mouth and screamed its head off, wishing it was back inside the mother's womb where it was nice and warm and moist, that very second was when eternity for the first time got split in two. Up to that time, the band of infinity started from who knows where going to who knows where. But from the moment that Jesus took that first breath and that first scream came out of his mouth, history split eternity in two, before Jesus and after Jesus. Nothing would ever be the same, not just your history and mine, but eternity's history, God's history. The Trinity's history got split in two the moment that this baby came out of this, this teenage woman, purple-faced, helpless, hopeless, couldn't fend for itself, couldn't feed itself, so defenseless that he was at the risk of a Roman soldier's sword, so they had to flee Bethlehem and get out of there and go to, to Egypt. All of that... And then Jesus says, I want you to know why all of that happened. This is why I came. And our discussion this morning is, why did Jesus come and what difference does it make? And how do you and I receive him at this time of Advent and we have this hope that burns within us? Are you ready? Theologians and preachers have argued about why Jesus came, and some say he came to justify us, and some say he came to show us the love of God. Of course, why can't he do both? 
I haven't figured that out, but we have a whole denomination split down over which way it's supposed to be. And there's 16 other reasons why we say Jesus came. And we can argue until we're blue in the face, but what matters is what does Jesus say he came for? What did he say his purpose was in coming? He said definite things about why he was here. If you went up to him in the middle of his ministry, it would not change from the beginning there in Nazareth. It would not change uh, at the end. It was always going to be the same. And that's on that basis he could, he could um, stay very focused upon what and why he was here. But what he said, and this is the important part, challenges you and I to our core. Because what he said affects you and me. And we are changed and challenged by what he said about why he came. Nothing will ever be the same after we address this moment in time and say, Jesus, why are you here? Let's have a word of prayer before we delve into this verse, shall we? Father, this morning we just want to thank you for coming, first and foremost. And we know as, as deeply as we research this topic and as we enter into it spiritually, and even the time that we take this morning, it's not going to get us very far down the way, but it'll get us far enough so that hope will burn within us, we believe. We claim that. And so may your spirit just come right now and just open us up to the possibilities and the realizations. And may this truly be a Merry Christmas for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And not this verse is not brand new to any of us, is it? We've heard this verse till we're blue in the face. But if any of you are analytical thinkers, what you know is that if Jesus came for everyone, that means that somewhere on this list, you are on the list. If he came to save everyone, then somewhere in here, we will find ourselves on this list of why he came and what he was going to do with us when he came to find us. The poor, and we're not just talking economic poorness here, we're talking emotional poorness, where you were just drained. You were drained so deeply and, and, and down so far, you didn't know you could go that far inside of your soul, and there's just nothing there. There's no energy. There's no, there's no light you don't have the energy to help the neighbor next door because you're barely pulling yourself out of bed in the morning yourself. Some of you know what that feels like. Maybe all of us know what that feels like. I don't know. Spiritually poor. You just come in here wounded. The life that you've been living has just beaten you to death. And you're just spiritually wiped out. Is there really a God who, he's let me down every time I turn around. You talk about the depths of spiritual poverty. 
you those 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 writings on the wall at Auschwitz, you know, where is God? Why doesn't God do something? I don't believe in God. I mean, they struggle. The, the Jewish people believe that this God was the creator, all-powerful God. How could Auschwitz happen if God was God? Spiritually poor, just broken, beaten. Relationally poor. Just, do we have anybody in our life that we can count on? Everybody that we've ever counted on has let us down. We can't trust a soul. We can't share ourselves with anybody because we don't know what they're going to do with it. They are going to misuse it somehow is our assumption. Just have no more reserves. We're just gone. It's gone. No place to turn. Powerless. One of the most important lessons I learned when we were working with inner city families in, in Portland, Oregon, before we moved here, came by, by this one guy who came up to me one time and he said, Bob, thank you. And I said, for what? I, had, I don't, you know, I, I barely knew his name. His name was Steve, but I barely knew it. And I said, for what, Steve? And he says, for you seeing me, you look at me when you talk to me. Some of us are so powerless and so poor that others will not even look at They will not honor us by even looking at us. One of the exciting things that I like about multi-generational worship is that hopefully we can go and look into the eyes of kids. They're pretty powerless too. We look into their eyes. We get to know their names. We get to share time and place with them because they are part of us and they're not just... A thing that we have to endure for 18 or 19 years and get them out the door. No, they're vital. They're they're important. We honor them. We look at them. We get to know who they are. We know their names. We even know their birthdays sometimes. But this man was so poor that he knew that every time he went to a store, nobody would look directly at him. Every time he went anywhere, everybody's eyes went somewhere else, but they never looked at him. You ever done that with a beggar out the door that wants five, you know, five bucks from you as you're parked at the light? You never look at him, do you? Or maybe some of us are prisoners. We're just stuck wherever we find ourselves. We're just stuck. Stuck in nowheresville. Our life doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Our careers are at a dead end. We may be captured by our addictions, or even worse, we're captured by our lack of creative thinking or innovation or ability to look around the corner to say, maybe I have some different options. Maybe I don't have to do everything the same way that I've been doing it, and maybe I, there are some possibilities for my life, but no, we're a prisoner to what we know. There's a saying in psychology, we only know what we know. And we're prisoners to that. Some of us, I, I, boy, in 2001 and 2008, I went over to Pakistan um, to open up a, a Western schools in northwest Pakistan where all the Taliban is. I went to a mosque on Friday. I prayed with them. I ate their meals. And I met everybody um, important in that whole region over there. It was sort of an exciting time. It was also a little scary time because there's all kinds of riots. And everywhere you went, there was 500 AK-47s around you. Um, it was quite a time, but it... 
for a variety of reasons called terrorism. We couldn't get the thing off the ground. But um, I was stuck, struck by how powerless, hopeless, and imprisoned these Pakistani families. Mainly. If you had money, you're fine. But on these villages where I'd go out and, 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 and meet people or open up, look at schools or look at possible, possible places for schools, 90% of the people had been on that same land. Their families had been on that same land working for the Khan, the landowner, for 200 years, 250 years, 300 years. That's all they knew. They weren't educated Pakistan has a 45% literacy rate. What that means is 45% of the people can sign their names. That's how they define literacy. Probably only about 12 or 15% of Pakistanis read. And they're stuck. And you look in their eyes and it's hollow. There's no joy. There's no spark. There's no, wow, we can do better than this kind of thing in their life. They are just imprisoned feel that way sometimes yourself yes we live in a land of opportunity but what's in between our ears sometimes just holds us right there we only know what we know blind we're just unable to see any possibility all we can see is our victimization that's all we recognize everything that fortifies our beliefs about ourselves being hurt and being wounded and being rejected and ignored and imprisoned and all the stuff that we've just described all we can see is that or if we get a glimmer of something it's all blurred and we can't define it and it doesn't it doesn't come into clarity so we don't know what to do with it we're just blind to ourselves, to those around us, and to the greater good. Oppressed. I honestly don't think that there's a greater oppression in this world. I'm sure there is. Being a little exaggerated, but I'm a preacher so I can make my point. I don't think there's a greater oppression than settling in for a life with a paycheck and a weekend, and that's where your life is. A paycheck and a weekend. I don't think it gets much worse than that. You were made for more than that. You were made to make a difference. You were made to be glorious. You were made to ride the white horse and, and be, have dominion over this world. And it is a curse to you to just settle in to doing nothing but a paycheck and a weekend. Come on. That oppression goes deep. And, and I know... We've been there. All of us have been there. We've all had jobs we haven't liked. We've all had things happen to us, and we're just stuck in that. But Jesus said, I came to deal with those of you that are oppressed. And then he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those who find ourselves and admit to ourselves that this is who we are, God says, I've come to give you grace, and I've come to give you favor. He anointed me. His only reason for coming. He didn't come to do miracles and to teach great things. He came to do this, and in the process of that, he healed, and he did miracles, and he taught great things. But they were not the end all. It is not enough to see Jesus as a great teacher or a great healer. That's not why he came. 
He came to free you. He came to open up your life to the possibilities of eternity. He came to give you life and more abundantly as John refines all of this down into one little sentence in, in, his, in his story. But he knew what he was about and so he knew it so much that when his mother came and said, Jesus, will you go and take care of the wine problem here at the wedding? Now, sometime I want you to go home and meditate. Why would Jesus' mother go to Jesus and ask him to do anything about the wine? My mom has never come and asked me to change water into wine. Has yours? Can you imagine what it would be like to raise Jesus and as he's discovering his powers? What, I mean, there's a whole Gnostic gospel about what Jesus was like between 12 and when he left home at 30. 